0: Good morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. I'm your host, Phil Coover, uh, partner in Ice Miller's Real Estate Practice Group. And as you know, uh, the Commercial Real Estate Breakfast podcast is a podcast about real estate and about the law. And today we have Jason Gallup. He is the new uh, officer of diversity and inclusion at publicly traded company Walker and Dunlop. And we have my my colleague Latanya Ellis, who's our practice group director, to talk about diversity inclusion. What are those topics? How are they similar? How are they different? And uh, just to explain why you're seeing more and more companies hire diversity inclusion officers, what the that role is, and what it's tr- the problems that it's trying to solve, and uh, the benefits to to having people focused on those issues. And so that interview is going to start a little bit later on the show, but we have a very special guest. We have my partner, Matt Miller, out of our Columbus office, who's also got a lot of ties to Chicago, as, as he may tell you about. But um, we're having Matt on the show to talk about our racial justice task force, something that Ice Miller recently created and that he is helping to spearhead. And so, Matt, thank you for coming on the show.
1: Thanks, Phil. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, you know, these are really important topics, and I'm glad you had me on to discuss.
0: Yeah. And as I mentioned, Matt's uh, in our municipal finance group. Uh, he's my partner there, in municipal finance, they do all sorts of big, really cool bond deals and other types of, of finance transactions. But, um, Matt, you know, this is something in addition to your normal role. Uh, you're working on the racial justice task force. I'm, I'm excited that Ice Miller is. Doing this, and uh, tell us a little bit about the task force, how it came together, and the it, its purpose. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Bill. Um, just to give you a little
1: background, uh, so the you know this past summer, uh, amid a lot of the racial unrest and protests uh, after the murder of George Floyd, I think there was a lot of introspection with a lot of companies and firms saying, you know, what what, what do we do about this? This is clearly not right, and what can we do as an organization to really? You know do our part to try to to end some of these issues um so the firm uh management came up with the the idea of creating a task force um we we'd bantered around ideas in the the dni committee which i'm involved with as well um and this is one of the ideas that i kind of threw out there in some of our discussions and, and you know firm management thought it was a good idea took it and ran with it and asked me to chair the task force so um around june or so uh Our firm managing partner gave me a call and and said, hey, Matt, would you be interested in chairing this and putting together a team and really kind of moving the needle forward with this task force? And and the idea of the task force is taking it a step further than diversity and inclusion, which which is traditionally kind of internal focused on uh, recruiting and retention and, and dealing with issues internally as far as numbers and that kind of thing go. Um, This kind of takes it a step further. This is, hey, we're creating this task force to be the outward facing face uh, of of the firm of the organization um, to handle these racial justice issues specifically. So it's a boots on the ground effort uh, where we're partnering with local grassroots organizations. We're using our relationships in the the legislature to to, to work with policy and legislative changes in order to kind of correct some of these issues that we see that are glaring in the system that that really have a a, a disparate impact on on people of color so um, i'm really excited that i was asked to chair it um, you know we've been really hard at work out there speaking with individuals and organizations to see you know what else we can do or what we can we get involved with um because you know it, during this exercise over the past few months as a chair i've been talking to a ton of people in the private sector in the public sector and i think one of the main issues that, that, that we face is, and a lot of organizations face is, you know, they really want to get involved in these issues, but they really don't know how. So, you know, you have the the, the folks that, that will just commit a monetary donation, which is all well and good. It helps these organizations very much. Um, but, you know, we've been in a unique opportunity and given the, 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 the go ahead to really kind of organize a team, get out there, participate with with organizations partner with organizations create alliances become members of different groups and really kind of volunteer our time and resources to to be a thought leader and and active in the communities that we serve
0: yeah it's really exciting I mean there's something inherent in lawyers and the law in having uh, an inherent desire to help with justice and uh, to fight for justice and so I think it's really like I said, exciting that the firm is dedicating resources by letting, but not just letting, but encouraging people to use their time and their resources for these causes. I know it's, it's just sort of getting off the ground in, in terms of from, from a time perspective, but I think there's already some exciting things happening. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what people are doing?
1: Yeah, sure. I, th- I think one of the unique things that we've been able to, to, to participate with is uh, a, a data-driven kind of objective study in Cuyahoga County in Ohio, where we're working with uh, Michigan State Law School to um, dive into the data of the impact or the, the the application of the death penalty based on race in Cuyahoga County. Um, so it's a, it's a you know nonpartisan objective study that just kind of delves into the details of you know, when the death penalty is applied, how it's applied, who it's applied to, what kind of criminals, what kind of background as far as race goes, and really kind of compile that data, boil down that data and, and, and to be used to analyze it. Um, it's not a traditional kind of what you think of with a law from a pro bono case where, you know, you make an, you make an appearance, or you go represent somebody in court. It's really kind of a a, a, a data-driven research re- review process that will will end with work product that will be used to analyze public policy, maybe hopefully direct public policy, and find any errors or issues with, with how the death penalty is being applied, not necessarily only in Cuyahoga County, but maybe they're, they're, they'll spark some, some ideas in, in places outside of that jurisdiction. Um, so that's a really neat project that we've been doing. Um, in Indianapolis, we've partnered with a couple of uh, Uh, Local corporations there to do a license reinstatement training where our attorneys uh, on the task force will go in and train in-house general or in-house legal counsel um, to participate in, you know, license reinstatement. We've also done expungement training. Um, so it's uh, kind of the, those opportunities are have been kind of tr- outside the traditional kind of pro bono on the ground efforts that you'll see out of law firms. So and that's what we're, we're really trying to do. You know, we want to involve not only our uh, attorneys but our staff and anybody who wants to get involved with these issues. So we don't want to limit it to just a traditional pro bono where you know, you go in and you have to have a law license to, to, to appear in court and and, and, and advocate on behalf of somebody that, which is, don't get me wrong, this extremely important work. And it's, we're also doing that work, but you know, we're trying to bring into the fold some unique opportunities so we can open it up to, to all of the employees at Ice Miller.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, and we do have some of the more traditional pro bono cases. I mean, I think you you see people like Diane Minash who's, you, you know, an all-star litigator who's taking on a wrongful conviction cases and you also um you know what are we doing in chicago because i think rena our colleague was working with cabrini green legal aid organization's been around since the 70s or 80s um you know tell us a little bit about I have a lot of Chicago listeners, so.
1: Yeah, no, certainly. So uh, just by way of background, I mean, I I spent 13 years in Chicago and I'm originally from Columbus. I just moved back here. But, um, you know, majority of my connections and contacts and network is is in Chicago. So we've been pretty heavily involved uh, in Chicago. Um, Phil, as you just mentioned, with Cabrini Union Legal Aid Society, we've, had numerous conversations with them on how we can expand the efforts we've currently been working on. Um, and we've narrowed down a couple different, um, a a couple different areas that we're going to beef up our uh, partnership with them. Um, one of them is in the area of cannabis uh, expungement, uh, on criminal records. And another is, uh, is on a, a pellet, a pellet assistance with them. So that's a great opportunity for us. Um, I'm a member of the Chicago Bar Foundation Racial Justice Task Force, which is a compilation of law firms and other nonprofits in the Chicagoland area that have specifically been created to to identify some of these issues and really kind of delve into them as a as more of an alliance um, in the Chicagoland area, which has been very, very fruitful. We've had several conversations. I mean, our our, our calls go on for hours and, and there's lots of input and ideas. And, and I think there's going to be some really good uh Really good initiatives coming out of that group. Um, we've worked with the uh, Civil Rights Committee. I, I'm on the Professionals Council of the Shriver Center, so we've doing, we've been doing a lot with the Shriver Center. Um, we're a member of their Law Firm Anti-Racist Alliance. So our our, our ties to Chicago really run deep and strong. Um, I, we've had a lot of folks uh, at ICE and Live that have do, been doing work with these organizations for many many years. Um, and, and, you know, our effort as a task force is to really, you know, take, take what we've been doing there and, and expand upon it using the firm resources and time and interest in, in solving these issues.
0: Well, Matt, I, I really appreciate everything you're doing as the chair of the Racial Justice Task Force. Um, it's really exciting to, to have you on here to tell everyone about uh, all of these initiatives uh, that the firm is doing. And, you know, thank you very much for your time. If any listeners Have any ideas for our task force, please feel free to get in touch with myself or with Matt. We're easily searchable for our contact information. And you can also check out Matt Miller's article in the Columbus CEO. It's called Moonshot Idea. The private sector has the ability and the responsibility to fight inequity. It's just published October 5th, 2020. So it's hot off the press. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And, and yeah, if there's any
1: ideas, thoughts, the, the one thing we, we definitely try to do as a task force, whether it's internally or externally, we want to listen to to what other folks are doing, what other ideas are out there to help and and, and and you know get as involved as get as involved as we possibly can in our community. So uh, we're all ears when it comes to ideas and initiatives. So feel free to contact
0: myself or Phil. Thanks so much. Thank you, Phil. Welcome back. This is Real Estate for Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Coover, with Ice Miller. Today we're our topic is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we have two great guests. We have first our, our featured guest is Jason Gollub, the new vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion with Walker and Dunlop. And then we also have my co host uh, slash guest, Latanya Ellis. Latanya is our Practice Group Director for the Real Estate Practice Group and the Municipal Finance Practice Group at Ice Miller. I've been working with her for for two firms now. Um, Latanya, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah. And just a little background about Latanya, she, as I mentioned, she's a Practice Group Director. For those who don't know, law firms have Practice Group Directors, which is uh, theoretically a business person who helps run our practice group, helps build our team, manage our finances, make sure everyone's happy. I mean, really does everything. Uh, Latanya is both a lawyer and our business person helping us with a group. And so she uh, helps with everything. I think the, the job title is actually too broad to describe. And she's one of the the only um, minority female practice group leaders for a real estate group in in the country that we're aware of. So LaTanya, thanks for discussing diversity and inclusion with us.
2: It's, it's my pleasure.
0: And then also one of our featured guest, Jason Gallup. Jason, as I mentioned, is a vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, in a newly created role at Walker & Dunlop, a large commercial real estate publicly traded company. Our listeners will remember when I had the CEO of Walker & Dunlop on the podcast in the summer of 2020, and so uh, Jason, welcome to the show, and please tell us a little bit about your role.
3: Well, Phil, thanks for having me. Uh, Latanya, thanks for having me as well. Um, as you mentioned, it, it's a newly created role. Uh, Willie has Willie Walker, our CEO, has had a long, long-term commitment to uh, furthering DNI in corporate America, uh, and you know you, you, you want to start with your own company and so for him really wanting to push the envelope and make Walker and Dunlop a uh, a leader in D&I in the commercial real estate space the, the role made sense the commitment long term made sense uh and so uh that that's that's how my role came to be and that's how I came to to Walker and Dunlop
0: fantastic and and Jason so diversity and inclusion is something that we've, we hear a lot of, uh, but they're two related, but distinct concepts. Um, can you explain to us what is diversity inclusion to you?
3: Sure. So to me, diversity is the makeup of, of your workforce. It's the, the pers- the unique perspectives, the backgrounds, beliefs of the people you, you bring into your company. Uh, inclusion on the other hand is, is creating an environment and a culture that enables those people to participate and to thrive. And so uh, I like to say diversity is inviting everyone to the party. Uh, inclusion is letting them choose how to dance.
0: I like that. That's really good. What's interesting is I we have Latanya and Jason. Uh, Jason, commercial real estate, although also with a legal background. And Latanya and the legal industry. And I think both industries uh, do not have the best track record of diversity and inclusion. And so... Um, and both of you are interested in, in helping with that issue. Can you tell us a little bit about is diversity, inclusion, um, you know, lay, lay out what is the problem and and why are we hearing so much? Why are companies focused on improving their DI efforts?
3: Sure. So I'm happy to jump in there. So, uh, you know, as you mentioned, uh, the commercial real estate industry as a whole has, has not been a uh, – been a leader when it comes to uh diversity and inclusion historically and and i think to be fair you could say that about a lot of other industries i don't i don't see that that much difference between difference between us and law firms or us and the tech sector everyone has i think struggled historically with how to how to solve this problem Um, and so i think you know obviously what happened this summer with with the social unrest unrest that's gone on and and the uh The protests that followed um, certainly lit a fuse under corporate America uh, in terms of reassessing their commitment and and really focusing on this issue um, long term uh, and moving the needle. And so, you know, some some people will be skeptical of that and say, you know, that that's performative and a year from now we won't be talking about this at all. And, and, you know, history says perhaps that's true. As far as um, Walker and Dunlop and and, and Willie, you know, we, we had a very honest conversation before I joined about you know what it would take to move the needle. The fact that we needed to approach this like any other area of our business uh, strategically, and that included uh, transparency, accountability, metrics, um, and taking a long term approach. And so, so at least for us, I can't speak for anyone else in the industry, but we're trying to move this away from the the all talk and no action uh, performative dNI which may be well-meaning but ultimately isn't going to move the needle in terms of uh, long-term progress
0: and I want to dive into what the action steps are but let Tanya uh, let's you know, tell us about dNI efforts uh, for you and what you're trying to do for our firm
2: absolutely well just as Jason said um, we too from a law firm perspective struggle um, with DNI and it's it's nothing new and uh, so just thinking about how diversity makes us better and that's just the general thought that it makes us better more creative more innovative um, and our clients uh, are diverse more and more and so law firms have really struggled to really create a diverse, and inclusive workforce. And so um, that's something that has been at the forefront of our discussions from a recruiting standpoint, considering that the applicant pool of diverse attorneys um, is extremely small. And then once our, our candidates come on and onboard and integrate to the firm, we're looking at how is work allocated? How do we keep diverse attorneys uh, at the firm? How do we retain them? How do we give them quality work? So uh, it's been a challenge, not only in the corporate world, but in the law firm world. And it has to be a top-down-led initiative. And so here at Ice Miller, we have absolutely put diversity and inclusion at the forefront of, of who we are and what we do. And our chief managing partner has done an excellent job of really making that important. And so we do have... Uh, d committees that have the discussion, which is continuous on, and ongoing, on how we can be better uh, at d and initiatives and how can we attract diverse attorneys to our firm. What does that look like? Who do we have to be and, and show up so that other people see us as a leader uh, in this space? But it takes constant conversation, awareness, transparency, and most importantly, accountability because it's something that we can all do better at. But Ice Miller is having the conversation and uh, with our our committees that we form, we are really thinking of ways to think outside the box on how we can be better at this. So again, Phil and Jason, we, we both know it's it's a top-down uh, initiative and leadership has to buy into this concept and, and lead the charge.
0: That seems right. Jason, let's talk about what are the benefits of having a a top-down strategic initiative to focus on this. Because you mentioned that, sadly, you know, a year from now, maybe corporations, maybe this will fade a little bit, and and maybe corporations and big companies won't uh, consider this as high of a priority. But you know, I think what's it's it's hard to control the entire industry. Uh, All we can control is the organizations that. Are in front of us and that we're participating in. So, um, you know, tell us about Walker and Dunlop's strategic initiative and 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 your charter and what are some of those action steps you
3: want to take? Sure. So, so I think you know to answer your first question about the importance of of the top down approach. You know, I, I think in, in any area where you're you're driving culture, culture is driven from the top, and so. Uh, whether it's senior managers, middle, middle level managers, or, or entry-level employees, they're, they're all taking their cues from, from the CEO and from the senior leadership. And so if if the say-do ratio is there's is, is a disconnect, um, people are gonna see it. They're gonna see it from the top. And so, and you've often, you know, I've seen this in my past life in, in the compliance space, right? You you'll hear many CEOs and many leaders say they're they're committed to compliance. As you'll hear them say, they're committed to diversity and inclusion. But the question is, are you committed to it when, as it relates to your, your business or, as a, or something separate from your business? Because the, the way we're looking at it is DNI is, is integrated into how we're going to market, how we're innovating for our clients and, and how we're building our culture. If DNI is separate, then it, then it ends up taking a back seat to, to all of the drivers of, of the bottom line. Which is where you get that 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 people are looking at the CEO and they'll say, okay, he's saying compliance and DNI are important, but really they're not as important as these other things which which impact the bottom line. Uh, our view is that that innovation through DNI will impact the bottom line and is integrated into our our, our business model, uh, and so that really is a culture driver from the top down. Uh, in terms of in terms of our plans. Um, as you know, my, my role is relatively new. And so, so in terms of the, the short term, um, most of what I'm doing is uh, understanding the current state, um, conducting a, a culture and equity audit, uh, interviewing employees to understand, you know, what are the concerns, what are the problems, what's good, what's bad, um, beginning the process of data collection, uh, really kind of developing that baseline picture uh, of, of where we are today in order to then build a strategic, long-term DNI program, uh, and I think this is where sometimes DNI programs can go wrong. There's a rush to do stuff uh, to show that you're making progress, so to speak, uh, and so you rush into trainings and communications and programs, and they're all well-meaning, but they may so you may not really they may not be connected to the problem. You, in other words if you don't understand the why behind what you're doing, you may not ultimately be solving the problem, the problems that exist in your company. And so for me, it's largely a first get that baseline picture, understand what the problems are and how we can go about solving them and and what are our goals and then build a program that's long-term and reflects that reality. Um, So you get buy-in and then you, and then you build as you would any other area of your business, you you build a, a one, three and five year, Model uh, and you have interim goals and you have accountability built in and transparency, and, and that's really the approach that we're taking.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, there's obviously social good to doing diversity inclusion, but you mentioned that it's built into your business plan. And, um, you know, I'd like both of you actually, but let's start with Jason since we're on topic, but then I'll go to Latanya's. There's also a business case for focusing on diversity and inclusion, and I think you you don't want to focus on, are we doing this because it's the right thing to do and it's a good thing to do, and are we focusing on this because it's just for dollars and for business? Um, But you can make an argument for there's a strong argument for both, and they overlap, and you don't have to do things for all of one reason or all of the other reason. But because I think a lot of people don't realize there's a fair amount of people don't realize you don't want to make any generalizations that there is a business case for diversity and inclusion. Um, can you talk about you know you you're going identify you're going to spend the first amount of time trying to identify the problems and then work on the why and the solutions but can you talk about um, the business reasons for focusing on diversity and inclusion?
3: Sure. So so again, you know, these, these are these are just how, you know this is how we're thinking about this. And, you know, different companies may may come out in different places. But to me, D&I is, is one of the most important drivers of corporate innovation and growth. Um, and, and I say that for a few reasons. Um, so to me, you know, having diverse perspectives it, it is really the, the, the missing perspective when you're looking at solving problems for your your Clients and when you're looking for new opportunities, if everyone in the room uh, looks and sounds and thinks the same, and again, broad generalization, but you know, for the sake of, of w- what we're trying to understand here, um, you know, there is a homogenous element to the corporate real estate sector, and so when you start to get new perspectives, new ways of thinking about problems. Um, you're going to start to uncover new opportunities uh, and new ways that you can solve problems for your clients, new ways you can innovate, entirely new business models that you may not have even seen. You can start serving populations that you weren't focused on before um, that may have been underserved, that may have been marginalized. And this is largely driven by getting new perspectives at the table. And and that's really, to me, that's the, the beauty of inclusion is it's going to drive the business to look at problems through a different lens. Uh, and it's a huge differentiator for a company that really embraces it. And that's, that's, that's the, what I'm driving. That's where I'm driving Walker and Dunlop to that space to both be an innovator in D and a leader, but that will then lead us to differentiate for our clients and innovate in, in corporate real estate, which again, that's good for the bottom line too.
0: Yeah, I mean, it probably also goes hand in hand with just the explosive growth of the company over the past 10-15 years. I mean, imagine if you're a commercial real estate company, and you're focused on a homogenous area of one city, then having homogenous thought may not be as much of a problem, but as your company has gone national and you know, you're in different markets, you're in different cities and there are, you know, this country is very vast in terms of thought and so imagine as you go into different markets and different areas it really helps to bring different ideas and perspectives um, because that one idea that one perspective that worked for one area of one city is not applicable to various different parts of the country
3: that that that's right and i think in some ways it's uh you know it's a problem you see in corporate america a lot is Companies will double down on what got them to to a point of success. They'll say this this was the model that got us to to be a public company. This is the model that got us, you know, over the hump, so to speak. And and it's the model that pays our bills or makes us successful. And so there's there is that reticence to pivot away from you know the 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 cash cow, for lack of a uh, of a better term. Um, but you see it in businesses all across. The world right you know this is, I call it the, the the blockbuster dilemma right blockbuster was wildly successful at, at you know renting VHS tapes and they probably had a, a board and a leadership team that, that saw every element of how to be successful in this one space but they didn't think differently they didn't see what was coming around the corner they weren't leveraging new ways of thinking and innovation to stay ahead and so we all know what happened to blockbuster they got destroyed by Netflix. And so, you know, while it's an extreme example, the point is when you look at the same problem through a different lens, and that lens is often provided by different perspectives, you're likely to come up with new and innovative solutions that will keep you ahead of the market.
0: Yeah, and kind of the opposite idea is if if Amazon had stuck with its bread and butter, it would be an online seller of books, uh, which is what the company started as. (laughs) Right. And they've certainly diversified their what they do. Uh, Latanya, can you tell us about diversity inclusion at, uh, at law firms and why that's important? I mean, what we do, as Jason said, is solve problems. And if you have more perspectives, you're going to be able to solve problems different ways.
2: Absolutely. And, and I just take a very basic approach to really looking at the benefits, when you create a diverse and inclusive culture in in a law firm environment, uh, it creates a happier, more relaxed environment for uh, your workforce, for attorneys to be more creative, to feel valued and respected, um, which leads ultimately to greater collaboration across offices or within the office. Um, Inclusive workplaces, especially in law firms, show a higher level of engaged attorneys Um, And it leads to just the better job performance. When you're looking at training and mentoring associates, when they come in, they feel respected um, and they feel a part um, of a greater team than just being siloed. So at its just basic levels, it just creates an environment where you can be more collaborative because you feel that your points of view and your ideas are accepted and valued and respected. So uh, everything that Jason said is true. It will increase the bottom line because you can be more innovative. And But our clients look different now. Uh, our clients are looking for ways that we can see beyond what we are already doing for them and be more creative and innovative. And, and in that, we have to have diversity of thought, diverse teams. And a lot of our clients are requiring that we have a diverse bench of attorneys Uh, working on their matters. So at its very basic levels and it being the right thing to do, and of course it drives revenue and all those other things, you have less churn in your workforce because people are are happier and they wanna stay, they wanna contribute because they feel that they're respected. So from a law firm environment, I, I think if we look at it as being a part of our culture and integrated in our culture, We'll retain more attorneys. You don't have to look across the street to see who's paying more, which firm is paying more. Uh, You want to stay somewhere where you can grow and invest your time and grow your practice because you feel that you're respected and and the firm has your back. And and so that's just my take on it. I think that um, it's the right thing to do because at those basic levels. Um, It's going to create a happier workforce.
0: Yeah, uh, I think that that's that's true. It's one of the reasons why you recruited me over to Ice Miller's because I wanted to to be on a diverse and inclusive a firm that was focused on diversity and inclusion, and I and I knew that you were going to help guide our team to be there, and so that was important to me uh, because working in a siloed a siloed law practice is not a very rewarding way to spend a great deal of time. Uh, and you want to yeah. be co- collaborative with people and and feel included and have everyone feel like they're an important member of the team. Um,
2: absolutely, absolutely. When I was recruited over to Ice Miller by our CIO, the first thing she said was, it is our chief managing partner's goal to make this firm one of the most inclusive law firms in the country. I've never heard that. That was the pitch. Yeah, That was it. And with that, that will make us better. And you will be at the forefront of that. You will be a leader in, in, in that. And again, we, we didn't talk about, okay, you can come over and you can, you can drive revenue and you can be a part of this huge strategic plan. It was, listen, this is what's going to make us better. This is what's gonna make us more competitive. It's the right thing to do. It's gonna be the thing that separates us from all the other law firms. It's important to us. It's important to you and we need you here. So I don't think that many people can say that that was the recruiting pitch in bringing them to a great firm. So that's just a testament to, to Ice Miller and the firms that are like Ice Miller that see this as an integral part of practice.
0: And I, I remember uh, when I when I joined and I remember telling a few people that I – one of the reasons why I was leaving is because I wanted to be part of a more inclusive atmosphere. And I knew that I was following my practice group director and I knew that she was going to make that a focus. And I got to say, I, a few people – some people get it and understood, but some people look at me like I was an alien. They're like I'd never – they had never heard anyone making a move. Uh, mm-hmm. for that reason they're you know usually move for for money for opportunity for maybe a commute um, just or because the work intrigues you and it's a different job but people had never heard that um, I want to ask you both just because I don't think in the introduction we started with your careers much and how you got to the very high levels of corporate culture that you're in today. Um, but Latanya, since we're, we're talking right now, and then we'll go over to Jason, but just both of you uh, have a legal background, both you are law school grads. Um, tell me just about, you know, why is, have you always felt included in corporate culture and why is focusing on inclusion uh, important to you? Uh,
2: absolutely. No, th- let me answer that question. I have not always felt Included in um, corp- corporate culture, and so right out of law school, uh, I went to work in the wireless industry for uh, two of the leading telecom carriers in the nation, and not a traditional path. But again, when you when you come out, you really don't you kind of find your way. And back then, we're talking about twenty years ago. It looked it looked differently, um, and so. When I started in, in corporate America, it was just this unspoken thing that um, in order to move up, you had to move around. You couldn't lead your peers. There were so many different nuances, but I did not see leaders that looked like me. That's just the main, if you went on the website and you looked to see who are the VPs or the C-class, C-suite individuals, you didn't see women of color. And what message does that send? And and it was a very powerful one. I didn't have mentors in corporate America or sponsors like a lot of my uh, peer group and colleagues, people to see your value and move you around. It I almost had to stumble to find my way. And and you often wonder uh, if you could have been much further in your career and achieving your goals if you had the opportunity to be mentored and sponsored as, as a, a diverse individual in, in the corporate work, workplace. But nevertheless, um, it just, I really didn't see uh, images of leaders in the corporate world, in my corporate world that I could identify with. And so uh, I tried to find my own and, and, and tried to create opportunity where I could. And then migrating over to the law firm uh, world Having a skill set of being um, in a corporate environment, being the client, and then migrating over to actually practice, well, it looked it looked almost the same, but even worse, because uh, you did not see equity partners uh, or leadership in law firms that were as diverse in, as in corporate America. And so I just made it. a a goal of mine to say, look, when people come to any company that I'm with, they're going to see me as a leader in this organization. That's the only way you can attract other diverse individuals. When you look to see who's at a firm or who's at a company and you look at what does our management team look like? If you don't see diversity there as a diverse individual, why would you move? Why would you want to be a part of an organization that does not have a diverse management or leadership team. That was my goal and objective and saying, you know what, this is the goal that I want to work toward such that I can be uh, someone that pays it forward so that when when other diverse individuals see that I'm in a leadership position, they will be able to identify with me uh, and, and with the organization. And immediately you identify that this is an organization that has a great culture that celebrates diversity at its highest levels. And, and, you know, I will go back to my corporate environment. And this is just kind of a story that's really interesting. Um, I was one of the few African American women uh, leading a team uh, in, in a corporate environment. And I had the most diverse team in, in, in the company. And so oddly, people would come to me and say, Do you know that? your team is extremely diverse. And this was in a negative way. Seems like you're hiring all minority uh, employees. They didn't think of the flip side of me for years being in an environment where I was the only minority. But as soon as I started introducing more women and um, individuals of color, it was seen as you better watch that. That can have a negative connotation. But I would always counter that with, I'm the only uh, team that has the most uh, accomplished individuals serving on the team. I have a team of attorneys that have a wide range of experience or professionals. And so that is what matters. I'm bringing in the best people for the job. And if they happen to be persons of color, then that's what that is. And so Phil, you know, and Jason, I'm sure you, you've you heard stories like this before. It can be very discouraging because when, when you are diverse, you do have scrutiny and the things that you do because not everyone can really understand D&I. Now, it's, 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 it's a very touchy subject, especially when you're a leader. So uh, sometimes you feel like you have to take baby steps to make change because, as Jason said previously, if you come in and you just try to do everything, number one, it won't be well-received, and number two, it it won't be institutionalized change. So that's just kind of the experience that I've had. I I didn't really have sponsors and mentors to to pave the way, so I tried to do it in a way that I could lead others uh, down a path that is a little less resistant.
0: Well, you can and you are. Uh, Thanks for sharing, and I know you're a great role model to a lot of people in our, in our company and, and at others. Uh, Jason, could you also just tell us a little bit about your background and experiences and, and whether you've always felt like you've been in an inclusive
3: atmosphere? Sure. So first, I think Latanya hit on so many great points there. I mean, it's almost, almost not a lot to add. So I, I echo everything she just said as, as kind of spot on. Um, so my background is I, I went to Columbia Law School Uh, And I went to, uh, ironically, become a human rights lawyer, an international lawyer. I I had almost no interest in corporate America when I went to law school. Uh, And in fact, I I was thinking about going to the Peace Corps instead. Um, So that that should tell you something about where my where my where my passions were, even even at an early age. Um, I I would say before I, you know, I I worked at a number at at a couple of law firms, mostly at Wilmer Hale in, in New York City um, in terms of my law firm career, I had some amazing, uh, people that I worked for, uh, in my law firm career, um, brilliant progressive thinkers, leaders, uh, people of all colors who, who mentored me, who went to bat for me. Um, so that, so I I don't, I don't want to generalize and say there were none because I think there were, there were many, um, and I probably wouldn't be where I am without their help. Um, and I would say the same thing at, at GE, um, I, I'll, I'll echo what Latanya said, is that, you know, there, there weren't a lot of people, if any people, that looked like me in, in the partnership ranks uh, in law firms. And so there, there was certainly that lack of looking up and saying, do, do I have a, do, just on this basis alone, do they value someone like, that looks and sounds like me in their, in their leadership ranks? And, and when you don't see that, it's very hard for you to, to, to internalize a, a, the long-term of being, of being in a company. And so um, that's something that I certainly stress here as well, is that you have to focus on the leadership ranks first. Uh, you can't just say, I'm, I'm going to hire a bunch of diverse entry-level uh, ta- uh, talent. That's fantastic. But ultimately those talent are going, they're going to look up and say, do I have a long-term career trajectory here? Uh, and if they don't see people who look like them, who are, who are in leadership roles, there, there's going to be an open question. Um, and so when I got to GE, I worked for a, a, a woman who was uh, she was an Asian woman, and she, uh, like me, and like as Latanya described, she valued diversity on her team um, more than almost anyone I'd met. Um, and this this supported the theory, which I still have today, which is if you put diverse leaders, if you have diverse leaders it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because they are going to value building diverse teams. Uh, you don't have to explain to them the value. They get the value proposition inherently. And so uh, she had one of the, one of the highest performing and most diverse teams in all of GE. And, and not surprisingly, I, I loved, I loved working for her uh, and, and largely my passion for this space uh, grew to where, where it is today in that environment. Um, so again, I just I echo everything Latanya La says. Uh, the flip side, and the, you know the, the negative reality is that not everyone uh, embraces DNI, and some people will in fact view it as a threat. And so uh, you know, I've seen instances both personally and through secondhand accounts from, from friends who, who are diverse, who have gotten to that law firm partner uh, point in their life and and they've met resistance. And, and ironically, some of that resistance is is a function of um, what, what is sometimes viewed as the the positive element, which is clients are now demanding law firms uh, improve their diversity, improve the teams they're bringing, the diversity of the teams they're bringing to work on their matters and the leadership. And so when you're a diverse potential partner, there is some tension between that reality and, and the existing partners who may be trying to protect their books of business, who may be worried that they're going to lose business now because their clients want to work with diverse lawyers and perhaps not them. And so I've seen that play out as well, where there has been that, you know, I'm going to protect my, um, my clients and, and my book of business because I think this is a threat. Um, now I, I'm hoping that that is the 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 minority of law firm partners, but I, I have seen that play out, and it certainly does exist. Um, the other thing that I've seen play out is, you know, law firms will will have one or two diverse leaders or partners who aren't necessarily rainmakers, who aren't bringing in significant books of business, and they'll extrapolate from that. And saying, well, why would we bring in more diverse leaders who aren't bringing in books of business? And so, you know, and my, my response to that is, of course, you know, you've got 50, 50 partners who are white men and only five of them are bringing in significant books of business. And we're not having that conversation. So there is a little there is that tension that does exist. Um, some of it is just misunderstanding the value. Some of it is, I think, a threat. Um, for me, it's always been about, you know, finding the allies in, in all places, finding the people in leadership roles who do get it, who do understand the value to the business and to the clients uh, and and to the diverse leaders and, and employees. Um, and that's really where my passion came from is, is, you know, seeing how that plays out meaningfully in a company like GE, uh, seeing how it can, you know, not play out so so well in in a law firm for, for diverse leaders, and not wanting um, diverse leaders here to have that same experience to really to to really set it up so that everyone has that opportunity here.
0: Uh, so much truth in that, and how you're describing law firms and and different partners. And the um, you know, Latanya, do you want to talk about the Mansfield rule and just something? It's an initiative that exists. And um, do you want to talk about the background of that rule and how that's being applied?
2: Um, well, sure. And, and the Mansfield rule is inspired by the winning idea at, at the 2000, I think, in 16 women in law um, hackathon that measures whether law firms have affirmatively considered at least 30 percent um, of women, lawyers of color, LGBTQ, uh, lawyers and lawyers with disabilities for leadership uh, opportunities within uh, the the firm. So when we're talking about that, it's like governance roles, equity partner promotions, uh, client pitch uh, opportunities, and, and also I would say kind of senior lateral positions. So we're looking at at least 30% of your workforce being made up of that. And uh, so with Jason kind of mentioning a lot of Folks don't understand. That. They they feel that this type of rule may may prevent someone else that is a non diverse attorney from making partner or moving up or having an equity partnership position or governance role. But but it, it's it's just really not that. It absolutely does the opposite of that. Um, if diversity makes us better and inclusion makes us better, and it, and and we are ensuring that our leadership is more diverse and creative and innovative and and, more, um, uh, and we're more thoughtful in how we do that, arguably our fir- firm will be better. I don't believe that it takes any opportunity from any other partner or any other person uh, within the law firm environment from moving up uh, any other person from promoting to another role within a law firm environment. So that's what the Mansfield rule is intended to do.
0: Yeah, and it's not a law, right? It's 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 a rule that firms can opt in uh, to consider, you know, to have this rule in place in in sort of in sort of their processes uh, for these considerations, right?
2: Absolutely, it's it's an opt in, it's an opt in rule that just measures have we made those considerations. So firms can absolutely opt in. Jason, I was,
0: I was wondering, one thing, and Latanya, jump in here if you want to, but I want to ask Jason about something he's considering for his, and I also I also want to ask you about, so I know we don't want to rush to action on steps, but I want to talk about what are some steps companies can take, but uh, workplace workflow allocation is something that Latanya and I have talked about a lot. Um, you know, I've I think to relate this to people who haven't considered it in the context of developing attorneys, because that's something well, Latanya is very interested in the growth of our, our staff and our attorneys. Um, but, you know, Malcolm Gladwell had the book about 10,000 hours, and he talked about how the, in Canadian hockey leagues, um, the kids who were born closer to the birthday date, so they were older, got Put into the better leagues because at five years old, you're more developed than the kid who just turned five, than the kid who's about to turn six. And so they ended up getting the best coaching and they ended up getting better. And statistically it was off the charts by the, the Canadian hockey players born in such and such months, making it to the professional levels. And I've also just, so that was kind of an interesting sports analogy. And then I've also heard, because I've heard that applied in, in various other sports, the kids who get the best coaching and put into the most competitive leagues end up becoming better players. And just, you know, we've talked a lot about the ki- people that get put on, put on with the best clients and the best files and get the best opportunities of workflow um, and more workflow, they get more rep, reps and they get more tutelage and guidance and practice. And, you know, in the practice of law and real estate, there's, there's a lot of trial and error, um, Wish there wasn't, but, you know, or, you or Trial and error is probably too harsh, but you learn from mistakes. You learn from nuances and language, um, and you learn from seeing projects play out. And so, um, you know, how have you? Can are you all focused on um, getting quality projects to some of your diverse um, colleagues, and, and how that helps with their development?
3: Yeah. So, so as you as you pointed out, um, this is certainly a process at at Walker and Dunlop, and, and that that sponsorship and mentoring component is, is a significant part of our you know our you know what we call our our second pillar, which is representation and opportunity. Um, and and I think what you're speaking to is that that opportunity. Um, and my view uh, is that we have to be extremely intentional about that, both the sponsorship. Um, and the mentorship component. Um, I think research pretty much set, you know, shows us that if left to their own devices, leaders are likely to mentor and sponsor someone, again, who looks and sounds like them. So, you know, a white male leader is likely to self-select a white male mentee. And not for a nefarious reason, uh, and not for any other reason other than that's just how human nature operates. Um, a female leader may be more likely to, to mentor me- mentor a female mentee. Um, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. However, when leadership is predominantly homogenous, it then limits the opportunities for that kind of mentorship and sponsorship for for diverse employees. And so you really have to be more intentional and highlight diverse employees, and pair them up with sponsors that, that will, over a long period of time, provide them opportunities. And, uh, I, LaTanya, I think you and I had this discussion once before, the difference between a sponsor and a mentor is significant because a sponsor is essentially taking you under their wing long-term and having some, some responsibility for, for your career, whereas I can mentor someone on a specific project and then never speak to them again. So, so there's certainly value in mentorship, but the sponsorship of a, of a diverse employee over a long period of time is that opportunity you're highlighting is that's the hockey player who gets into the best program when they're five and gets all these opportunities for the next decade. That's where we want to be playing at Walker and Dunlop. And that, that takes both intentionality and it takes time. And so that's, that's, that's what we're working on right now.
0: Thank you. Latanya. did you want to touch on those points?
2: Absolutely. And and I completely agree. I remember when we we discussed that. And I just you look at mentors and sponsors, um, especially for diverse attorneys in in my world. And and I look at mentors helping build uh, an attorney's or an associate's uh, career vision and being a part of that but on the flip side i look at sponsors who are those advocates and they are in positions of authority that can use that position of authority to just influence intentionality and that's what we're looking to do and that's what i want to build a team of sponsors when we're looking at work allocation for diverse attorneys so mentoring is great and it's wonderful and it's appreciated but having uh, sponsors that go in as partners or uh, leaders within the firm environment and and work to build a diverse bench um, and take ownership of their career looks a lot different. So they have quality work uh, and and matters and assignments to work on. They have uh, an ability to work with someone that can monitor their work product so that it is substantively sound And, and they perform at a higher level. And it makes a difference. But you have to be very intentional, as Jason said, uh, when you're looking at this, because you can have mentors everywhere. But those that have sponsors are better. They perform at a higher level. And they go on to achieve their goals and objectives that they set and some that they didn't even think about. So my goal uh, is, is... as a leader within the practice group, and especially focusing on associates. I tend to bring a lot of my corporate values with me in the law firm environment because I am a hybrid, right? And in corporate, we always talked about managing for tomorrow and and not managing for today. And what does the next five years look like, 10 years look like? And when I look at my associates, all of them, I try to say, what does the next five years look like? And let's plan that out. Let's see what we need to do and backtrack so that we can make sure that we're headed in the right direction. And and that may not necessarily be a linear uh, uh, step-by-step journey. It may look different, and it looks different for each one, but really focusing on leading attorneys to achieve their business development goals and their practice goals um, for tomorrow is just the key of how I choose to, to lead the groups. And and when we're talking about diverse attorneys, sometimes they don't even know what that looks like. They, they really don't. And you have to be able to talk through that and create a vision and have people subscribe to that vision so it becomes that reality for them. So that you put them in on the matters that may be high profile or give them opportunity to um, shadow uh, rainmakers and see what success looks like at different levels things that they may not have exposure to, you open those doors and you use your um, your influence to do so such that those goals that they may have become a reality. So, you know, I look at mentoring as being essential uh, and, and it's great when you have that. But when you look at that sponsorship, that just separates things and takes it to a whole nother level. And uh, so I really try to have and feel you, you, you're one of those sponsors and mentors that, that we work together within our, our practice group to make sure that those diverse attorneys or all attorneys within our practice, group, all our associates, have opportunity to be better, to grow, to advance in practice. And, and that's a goal of ours. And that's why I'm glad that we lead together. And you create an environment where people want to stay because they know their value. And it just kind of goes back to what we said. What is your culture? Um, what does that look like? And and why should people want to remain with you? Why should lawyers want to grow with the firm and not leave and go somewhere else? Well, it's because you're creating this environment where people are buying into their success. Uh, partners don't feel threatened because they think that, okay, why should I pour into some associate that's going to get up and leave? No, you create an environment for them to stay. You have to take ownership of that at every level. So I really think it's important. I know it's important. And when we talk about work allocation and, and building um, teams that do quality work, diverse teams that do quality work, it's everyone's responsibility to do that, especially at the highest levels.
0: Thank you for that. Jason, I was going to ask, um, as an expert on this subject, as you mentioned, you've been, you were at GE and Nyer, Walker, and Dunlop. What would you say to other companies about what steps can they take to start the process of focusing on DNI, or just uh, you know, how, how does is somebody or if a company was out there, they said we want to work on this, what should they do?
3: So, so I I had this conversation um, yesterday, in fact, and and so I'm, I'm more or less going to crib off of my advice that I gave to a panel discussion yesterday um you know the biggest thing that I think companies need to do is they need to start small I, I think particularly in this the environment we're in today the, the, the entire DNI conversation and the, the the need to build a program quickly um, in response to what's going on you know in socially it can be a little overwhelming for, for a company that's starting at square one that, that hasn't really uh, internalized what this means for their company. Uh, how they want to proceed, what, what it even means. And, and so for me, I would say start small, commit to something that's achievable, like commit to your next management hire being diverse. Okay. And say, what are the steps I need to hire one person? And that may be engaging your recruiter. that focuses on diverse talent. That could be developing a partnership with, uh, with an organization like Management Leaders of Tomorrow, or a real estate associates program that has a, a pipeline of uh, high performing diverse talent that they can plug you into, but if you're trying to think about it holistically and build an entire program from scratch when you've not focused on this, that may not be where, where you want to start, and that could, that you know that can be short circuited pretty quickly uh, and overwhelming. So, though so I would say start small, and when you're looking at at, a, at an individual, you know a lot of companies focus on their culture. Um, and, and I hear that at, at, at Walker and Dunlop, we have a very unique culture. And sometimes that, that idea that some, you know, we're looking at a new person. Are they a culture fit? Uh, it can be very narrowing when you're looking at, at talent. Um, and in some ways it, it excludes people that think and look and sound differently. The way I've reframed it here is instead of talking about someone being a culture fit, are they a culture ad? Mm. And so it, it, it Changes the way you think about it, and it nar it, 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 it widens the the can the candidate pool, I think, significantly. And so, and and frankly, a lot of times, diverse talent will fall into that culture ad versus obvious culture fit. Um, and so, reframing it that way, focusing on a single individual to hire is a good place to start. Um, I also mentioned developing a partnership that's a great place to start with some of these organizations that that really focus on building, building out really talented, diverse uh, entry-level interns. They also have developed think tanks. So if you're looking for training and education, that's a good, they're a good place to start as well. And then the last thing I would say, um, I would say, start small, develop a partnership, and then start to think about how you build in accountability because with all these programs, unless you're really Thoughtful about how you hold people accountable, it, it's very hard to, to move, move the needle. So, so that's going to be everything from developing and sharing DI metrics, being transparent about those metrics, both quantitative and qualitative, goal setting, concrete goal setting versus let's get better than last year. Um, you can't hold people accountable to an abstract idea like let's get better. So, really understanding. And you know how, how am I going to build accountability into into my thinking and into my leaderships, my leaderships thinking? Um, and obviously, the other end of the spectrum, you see someone like Starbucks who has come out and tied uh, their leaders' compensation to to progress in the DNI space. That that isn't where I would start, but certainly that's a that's a conversation that we're having at, at Walker and Dunlop. But those those are three areas where I would where I would encourage encourage companies and, and leaders to start. That.
0: That's great advice for a, a variety of, of large problems to tackle, just uh, starting small and manageable yeah. steps, concrete goal setting. I'm a big believer in goal setting. And yeah, you're you're absolutely right. You have to have it be measurable or there's no way to refer back to see if you accomplish the goal or not. Um, and I really like that, that nuance of, because you're right, culture fit is inherently a conforming approach. Like you're asking somebody to to take whatever they are and to fit into the existing culture, not to allow themselves to be who they are and have that change the culture in some small or large way. Um, so I like that, the culture ad. I've been asking my questions. Um, is there anything that... We'll take Jason, then we'll go to Latania, But Jason, is there anything that you'd like to say about these
3: topics right now? I think the two things that I've been preaching at Walker and Dunlop, one, D&I should be part of your business and part of your culture, because I think it really will drive innovation. And I think it's the language that leaders speak. And so having DNI as a separate, separate side, thing that's on the side and not core to your business, I think is a mistake. I think the DNI goals should be woven into how we go to market and how we do business, and how we serve our clients. Um, so that's one thing that I would encourage everyone to to internalize. And then the other I would I would say is you know, and this goes to your last question about where can companies start is to take a patient approach. Um, building a best-in-class DNI program is not an overnight endeavor, and it's probably not a one-year endeavor. And so in that respect, I would I would encourage companies to look at building d like they look at any other aspect of their business and develop a long-term strategic approach. Um, what are the steps you need to succeed? What does good look like and how do I get there? And what's realistic? And then build in transparency and accountability as you would with any other component of your business. I think that sort of approach is more likely to move the needle, whether it's in the corporate real estate space or the law firm space over the long term. So th- those are the two things I would I would encourage everyone to think about, uh, as, as we get further away from the social unrest of the summer and people, you know, are, aren't focusing on the, this issue 24 seven, it is going to take that long-term commitment and strategy to, to continue to move the needle. Thank you, Jason.
0: Um, I should always mention, we're recording this on October 16th. So, uh, if something changes that we're not commenting on by the time we release this, hopefully late October, uh, please remember the date we recorded this on. Uh, Latanya, uh, I want to give you an opportunity to just provide your own general comments on these issues uh, rather than just respond to my questions.
2: Absolutely. You know, DNI um, is so important because uh, being a, a woman of color, uh, it's always at the forefront of who I am and, and what I do. And so, like Jason said, like you said, Phil, we could talk about diversity and inclusion all day and, and never really scratch the surface of just how important it is to organizations and corporations and, and law firms. But I, I would say just in approaching DNI, you have to make an essential mission and core value of your overall strategic objectives for your organization. As, as growing uh, revenue, as increasing your workforce and, or bottom line, D&I should be up there in terms of those KPIs that you look to achieve uh, and, and measure your success. And so when when companies do that and they put it at the forefront of who they are and their culture and their mission, it, it, gets, it gets the visibility that it needs. And so companies that perform at a very high level do that when they and and when you look at that and what it means with to have a diverse workforce and have creative individuals supporting your business. All of those things, the bottom line and and being super innovative, those things come with that. Um, One of the things that I would also mention is, is that uh, you have to have some level of accountability here. Otherwise, people will just be meeting and talking about DNI forever. Organizations say something we should do. It's important to us, so let's form a committee and let's talk about it. But you got to take action, and you can have meeting over meeting to discuss what you need to do, and nothing gets done. And you look, and the needle hasn't moved. So another point I would say is you have to take action. You can't just sit around and talk about what's broken, and no one is committing to committed to fixing it. And approach it like eating the elephant. Uh, We talk about this all the time uh, in our committee meetings, just piece by piece. It's so overwhelming that if you step back and look at it, you don't know where to begin. But as Jason mentioned, little by little, attack those things that you know there's opportunity for change. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit where we can make simple changes uh, that have great impact. So that would be what I would say you 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 just have to be intentional and you have to take action. That's the most important thing.
0: Well, thank you both. Uh, thank you, Jason. Thank you, Latani. I really appreciate you sharing uh, your thoughts, the the depth of your experience uh, over your careers and some of the personal considerations and issues you've faced and just really, I think this is a very helpful conversation. I hope we have more of them either between the three of us or um, and in our firms and our lives and careers. And I just want to thank you both for coming on the show.
3: Thank you, Phil, for having us. I think the one, the one thing I would add there is you just highlighted the, the other thing that everyone needs to do is have more of these conversations, have tough conversations, have uncomfortable conversations, and have honest conversations. And I think – more of these conversations will will also move the needle. So thank you for having us.
2: Okay, yeah. thank you, Phil.
0: Yeah, I, I saw a post on Facebook yesterday, and most of these are they're not uh, earth shattering, but one was, you know, we were taught our whole lives not to talk about politics and religion, and then what happens is is we end up having a culture of people that are not able to talk about difficult subjects like politics and religion. And so maybe if we have more of these conversations, we'll get better at talking about them. That's right.
2: Absolutely.
0: All right. Take care. Thank you very much.
3: This publication is intended for general information purposes only and does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. The listener should consult with legal counsel to determine how laws or decisions discussed herein apply to the listener's specific circumstances.